You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Japan calls out China for cyber espionage. Colonial Pipeline restores service as organizations look to their own vulnerability to ransomware. The Dark Side Gang may have said it's going out of business, but it's likely that they're either rebranding or absconding. Two other gangs are in business. Conti is hitting Irish health organizations, and Avedon says it compromised insurer AXA. Rick Howard looks at new responsibilities for CISOs. Our guest is Samantha Madrid of Juniper Networks on establishing automation and security integrations seamlessly. And a spy gets 15 years in a U.S. prison. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, May 17th, 2021. Japan has publicly identified the Chinese government as responsible for recent cyber attacks, Nikkei Asia reports. It's an unusual move for Japan, which has normally been circumspect in its attributions of hostile activity in cyberspace. Japanese police chief Mitsuhiro Matsumoto officially identified China as responsible for an attack for which the Tokyo Metropolitan Police Department filed a case on April 20th. According to Yahoo News, the suspect is a Chinese systems engineer who is also a member of the Chinese Communist Party. He's alleged to have participated in cyber attacks against JAXA, the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency, and some 200 other Japanese companies and research institutions in 2016 and 2017. Z News reports that the suspect has now fled Japan. Japanese police were specific in their attribution. Quote, It's highly likely that the PLA's Unit 61419, a strategic support unit operating from the Chinese city of Qingdao in Shandong province, was involved in the cyber espionage. China's government has dismissed the attribution with indignation. China is firmly opposed to any country or institution using allegations of cyber attacks to throw mud at China, a foreign ministry representative said. The reliably Beijing-aligned Global Times asks if Japan is about to, quote, fumble policy to behave like Australia in confronting China, end quote, which suggests that both Tokyo and Canberra are on to something. Colonial Pipeline tweeted Saturday that its service had returned to normal. The company's decision to pay the extortionists' ransom has drawn generally adverse comment, Ironic, given that paying $5 million to Darkseid, the gang responsible, apparently didn't aid the recovery, which Colonial Pipeline had to do in the end from its own resources. 
Some, like the U.S. National Security Council's Ann Neuberger, expressed some sympathy for organizations caught in a tough spot. CNBC quoted her as saying, We recognize that victims of cyber attacks often face a very difficult situation, and they often have to just balance the cost-benefit when they have no choice with regards to paying a ransom. Colonial is a private company and will defer information regarding their decision on paying a ransom to them. End quote. This is not by any means an endorsement of giving in to extortionists. She pointed to the FBI's unambiguous advice against paying ransom. And overall, the consensus is with CISA, whose advice is summarized by Signal, paying the ransom isn't a good practice. Wired offers a long summary of the ways in which payment perpetuates a vicious cycle and fuels a bandit economy. The consensus is also that ransomware attacks against critical infrastructure are likely to be attempted again. An op-ed published by the Australian Broadcasting Corporation frames the incident as a warning that there's worse to come unless the major cyber powers can arrive at some international norms that would produce an effective arrangement in cyberspace. The New York Times, in a piece that accepts Darkseid's self-presentation as a group of apolitical criminals, argues that the incident should be assessed in terms of the vulnerabilities it exposed. The Darkseid ransomware gang, which has said that it lost control of both servers and at least some of the money it had extorted from victims, said late last week it was closing down, going out of business. The Wall Street Journal has an update on this particular going-out-of-business announcement, and they note that cybercriminal gangs have been known to announce their ride into the sunset, only to reappear again after a decent interval, usually under a new name. So it could be, as Security Week puts it, that the dark side operators are running scared. It's also possible, as FireEye tweeted, that the Hoods are simply taking advantage of an opportunity to abscond with their criminals' affiliates' money in an exit scam. That's happened before, too, but it's a bit too early to tell exactly what's going on with them. It would be naive to think that the people behind the scam have retired, gone straight, or moved on to another criminal line. Darkside isn't the only ransomware gang to make news. Ireland's health service executive has come under a ransomware attack that's interfered with scheduling care and that may, the Wall Street Journal reports, end up costing the public health care organization tens of millions of euros to remediate. The Irish Times says the country's Department of Health has also come under attack, probably by the same gang. Sources in the Irish government indicate that the victims do not intend to pay the ransom. Bleeping Computer identifies Conti as responsible. Conti's technique is usually to breach a network and move laterally until it obtains domain admin credentials. At that point, the operators use reflective DLL injection to deploy fileless ransomware payloads. Conti is described as a private ransomware-as-a-service operation. It recruits hoods to deploy its malware in exchange for a share of any ransom the victims might be induced to pay. The government of Ireland said in an official statement issued by the Department of Environment, Climate, and Communications, quote, The HSC became aware of a significant ransomware attack on some of its systems overnight. The National Cybersecurity Center was informed of the issue and immediately activated its crisis response plan. Insurer AXA last week took a strong line about ransomware payments, saying that it would no longer cover them. 
Over the weekend, the underwriters' business units in Thailand, Malaysia, Hong Kong, and the Philippines were themselves hit by ransomware. Bleeping Computer reports that the Avedon gang has claimed responsibility and says they've taken some three terabytes of sensitive data from the company's networks. Coincidentally or not, AXA was also subjected to some distributed denial-of-service activity. And finally, on Friday, Peter Zibinski Debens, the former U.S. Army Special Forces officer convicted of spying for the Russians, was sentenced to 15 years imprisonment by the U.S. District Judge Claude Hilton. That's two years shy of the 17 years prosecutors had asked, but a lot more than the five years his defense attorneys had recommended. The case touched on all four of the traditional motivations for espionage expressed in the acronym MICE, M for money, I for ideology, C for compromise, and E for ego. Mr. Debbins received a little bit of direct compensation of some monetary value, apparently not much, from the GRU, for information he provided them. He also had conceived a quasi-patriotic attachment to Russia, at least as far back as his days in ROTC at the University of Minnesota, characterizing himself as a loyal son of Russia. Whether that involved serving the Kremlin or freeing Russia from the Kremlin's boot apparently varied from time to time. According to the Army Times, Debens wrote, quote, I had a messianic vision for myself in Russia that I was going to free them from their oppressive government, so I was flattered when they reached out to me, End quote. He also said he was being blackmailed by the GRU, who were threatening to either expose him for same-sex attraction or kill him, or both, should he fail to play ball. The prosecutors said at the sentencing hearing that claims of extortion were news to them, that Mr. Debbins hadn't mentioned that to investigators. And finally, Mr. Debbins seemed to have felt a sense of ill use and injured merit that turned him against the United States Army. At any rate, it's an old story. Change Russia to His Majesty King George III and take out the same-sex attraction stuff, and it all could have been said by Benedict Arnold. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. 
Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. There is a tension that often occurs when configuring a data center. Focusing on agility helps make operations fast and productive, but a focus on security infrastructure can establish protected networks. This can create a type of seesaw effect as operators split their resources between these two priorities. Samantha Madrid is vice president of security business and strategy at Juniper Networks, and she joins us with insights on how intent-based networking can help put data centers in proper balance. There are traditional data centers, and when people think of it, I think they think that of the like centralized racks of servers, which most people think of when you think of data center. But there is an emerging model in distributed compute nodes deployed deep in a network and close to end users. And so when you think about what a data center is, all of this, in my view, is a data center. And so it's about really strengthening that posture and bridging both operational efficiencies with security. And I think the seesaw effect is really kind of shining a light on trade-off decisions that have been made in, in, in years past and in teams being put in that position. And I think organizationally, companies need to think about security more holistically, taking the step back and thinking about what security needs to look like in terms of business outcomes. And and I think that one of the challenges has been historically is decisions have been made in a very siloed way, meaning Mm. we see a problem, let's address that specific problem, instead of taking a step back and asking a very fundamental question, what is it we're trying to protect? Hmm. So then what is to be done here? What do you recommend? So, you know, I really recommend when you're kind of like with anything, whatever the, the, the security or initiative is, what is the business outcome you're trying to drive towards? And hmm. bringing in security at the start of that from the forefront. In terms of security specifically, I think we have to shy away from, as an industry, this brand uh, bias, if I will, if I will be as, as bold to say, where I think a lot of times there's a level of comfort that gives way to a popularity contest about a lot of vendors with respect to hmm. security. And we're not making the actual security decisions, which in my view, what needs to happen is you need to have validated security efficacy. You need to understand and continuously monitor the ability to 
evolve with the threat landscape? What's the threat coverage? What's the catch rate? What's the false positive, false negative rate? Are you bringing security to every point of connection? You know, from your gateways, between your servers, each application, and between data center locations and the workload itself. I mean, the goal at the end of the day of a security team should be to be able to expand their aperture to see and detect as much as they possibly can and know that that false positives will cause a team to turn off protections because it then starts to impede the business outcome. So to me, one of the most important things is maintaining high-level efficacy and evaluating technologies and validating your proposed architectures against them versus what I personally see a lot of times, a, a popularity-driven decision based on uh, a given you know, vendor du jour. That's Samantha Madrid from Juniper Networks. And joining me once again is Rick Howard. He is the CyberWire's chief security officer and also our chief analyst. Rick, it's great to have you back. Hey, Dave. Uh, so on your CSO Perspectives podcast, which is over on the CyberWire's pro side, you are on part two of a three-part series on new CISO responsibilities. What do you have lined up for us this week? Well, that's right, Dave. We are looking at potential new CISO tasks that have emerged in the last five years or so that have not traditionally been given to the CISO before. Like when I had my first CISO gig, geez, over 10 years ago, I don't like to admit that number, okay? But <laughs> I, I pretty much only had to worry about the firewall, the intrusion detection system, right. and the endpoint antivirus system. It was a lot less to secure back then, right? Yeah, you know, it was a lot easier, okay? <laughs> but that was it, okay? That was all we had to worry about. But today, these modern CISOs, they have so many more things on their plate. They still have to do all the things that I had to do, you know, a decade ago. But they also have securing internal data centers and mobile endpoints and multiple clouds. And that's not even including the OT environments and the supply chain that have been in the news of, you know, of these last few weeks. Mm. So. So last week, we indeed took a look at operational technology and industrial control systems and whether or not the CISOs of the world have been formally given the responsibility to secure those environments. But in this week's show, we're talking about identity. Mm, all right. Well, I, I, I like the sound of that. Um, you know, one of the things that it strikes me that you know, identity is more complicated than it used to be. It used to be just user ID and password. But now with the, the hotness being zero trust seems to me like it's more complicated than that. Yeah, in the old days, identity was essentially managing user ID and passwords in Active Directory. And so hmm. that task generally fell to the CIO. But in today's complex environments, like you said, as we all try to implement the zero trust stuff, a robust, and I mean robust, identity management system is an essential first step. So the question we try to answer this week is, if that is true, and I think both of you and I think it is, uh, if identity is the most important thing that CISOs have in their utility belt to build zero trust, shouldn't they own the responsibility to design it and maintain it? Hmm. Well, CSO Perspectives is in Season 5 over on the CyberWire Pro side, but you've also been releasing your Season 1 episodes to the public at the same time. What are you talking about there this week? 
Yeah, we've been trying to give the general public a taste of what the CSO Perspectives podcast is all about in a brazen attempt to show everybody what they're missing on the pro side. (laughs) Right. right? And as you know, Dave, since you are an internet celebrity yourself, uh, you don't come cheap, right? So we have to pay the bills somehow, right? Yes. And maybe my salary too. So (laughs) So, uh, this week's episode is a fun one. We talk about what exactly is the dark web. And how does Tor or the Onion Router fit into it? And the fact that Tor started out as a U.S. Navy research project. And finally, we get to the meat of the matter, which is we address whether or not you should be paying commercial intelligence companies for intelligence products that focus on that world. All right. Well, there's plenty to check out. Uh, we've got CSO Perspectives over on the pro side and earlier episodes from CSO Perspectives on our website, thecyberwire.com. Rick Howard, thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.